0: The following is a hoop ball presentation. Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. Hey, hey, good Friday, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Fantasy NBA Today a hoop ball presentation i am your host dan bespris and it is also another game of can dan do a podcast while plumbing is happening in the next room and a baby remains asleep one room the other direction this is called threading the needle while podcasting today and we'll see if we can pull it off i'll let you i'll let you guys know don't worry we'll we'll uh, pull back the curtain on whether or not this podcast is being done in four different chunks, and certainly you'll know if this show is coming out at like 7 or 8 o'clock at night that we didn't get it done. But if it pops up in the middle of the day, well, we'll play a game of did we get it done the right way. You can hit me up on Twitter at Dan DanBesbris, D-A-N-B-E-S-B-R-I-S. I have no problem telling you everything that's going on in my personal life on social media because, I mean, why not? What the hell else is it for if not for that? We got a lot of things to cover today, and possibly limited time, so we're going to dive right on into it. On the docket today, the Houston Rockets' our season recap, and they've got a whole bunch of things that we need to go over, including the the Rockets uh, recreating one of my favorite players of all time, and that is Kelly Olynyk with usage rate and what that means for him going forward, because. It's probably not going to be on the Rockets going forward due to a $12 million contract that just expired. They're still going to be paying John Wall and Eric Gordon way too much money. But beyond that, there isn't a lot going on in Houston. We also need to break down the finals, of course, tied 2-2. We talked a little bit about what happened on in that game on Wednesday on yesterday's podcast, but not all that much, and want to reset the board and get you configured for the game coming up tomorrow, because, of course, we needed another two days off between basketball games. We're going to begin by diving into the finals a little bit, and I'll also remind you guys that if you want to bet on any of these games, more than happy to actually uh, get you started. I'm being quite forthright about this right now. (laughs) I'm being extraordinarily forthright with what we're up to over here. We will get you started. I will open an account for you at mybookie.ag, and we will get you going with some actual cash. Not promo bucks, not you got to bet it six times. Once. Bet it once. You bet it. If you want to bet it all on one and make a withdrawal after that, I don't care if you win. Terrific. But we'll get you started with some actual cash and uh, all you got to do is hit me up on Twitter. Let me know you're interested in, in getting involved. And, again, this is very much an off-season promo we're running because during the season, a billion of you guys are uh, betting with us, and so we don't need to get a bunch of other new folks signed up. So take advantage of that. Again, at Dan vespers on Twitter, D-A-N-B-E-S-B-R-I-S. Hit me up, post haste. As the finals go, uh, 2-2 tie, headed back to Phoenix for Game 5 on Saturday. That's tomorrow, as of when we're recording this podcast. And I feel somewhat vindicated, if only because I didn't say the Bucks were going to come back and win the series. But what I did say after the first two games, I said it on my appearance on VEASAN with my good buddy Gil Alexander. And I'll say it to anybody that'll listen. The series was a lot closer than those first two games would indicate, and a lot closer even than the first three games would indicate, because remember, the Bucks came back and took game three in with an easy victory as well, 120 to 100, but each of those games had this sort of, the third game less than the first two, I guess, but mostly anomalous occurrences that were pushing the final number farther apart than it really should have been. And in Game 4, we finally got that close game that I kept saying, it's coming because all of the metrics tell us a close game is coming. What I also mentioned before Game 4 was that I figured Devin Booker was going to have a giant bounce-back game, and he did. That one, the writing was very much on the wall after he got benched down the stretch in Game 3. And admittedly, it was a pretty wide spread on that ball game. Bucks were beating Phoenix into the ground. But you knew Booker was going to come back with a certain new purpose, and he scored 42 points. But Phoenix lost that ball game despite shooting 51% from the field. The Bucks won it despite shooting 40% from the field, and a lot of that was because of the turnover game and the free throw game and the rebounding game, which, by the way, Milwaukee able to win, I think, all of those, certainly in attempts, if you're going to talk about free throws, in their home games. And the Bucks were basically winning the rebounding battle no matter where they're going. That's a good rebounding team. Having Giannis back in there makes them a, uh, a dominant rebounding team because now everybody can just sort of box out and he can go and get it from anywhere. Giannis was very good again, if a bit more limited. Chris Middleton was the guy who got cooking in Game 4. Giannis, 26, 14, and 8. Good to see him distributing the basketball while still shooting 58% from the field. That is a perfectly reasonable iteration of Giannis. Bucks will be thrilled to have that going forward. Drew Holiday was not good in Game 4. And again... They won anyway. The Bucks still haven't really had, certainly not in this series, and very few games, frankly, throughout the entire playoffs, where they've shot the three ball as well as they're built to shoot it. Perhaps one of those games comes over the final, potentially three, at least two games of this series. It's hard to say. I will say this. Final total in this ballgame was 212, which we did say there was a teeny-weeny lean to the under just because as a series goes on, you start to see teams slow things down a little bit. That wasn't really the case in this ballgame. The pace was actually still a pretty good clip. Uh, Bucks obviously more possessions than Phoenix because of the 12-turnover battle win and the 8-rebound battle win. So on the Milwaukee side, you could make a pretty reasonable argument that they had about 116 or so possessions, give or take. Phoenix, a much, much lower number. They were actually more in the range of about 105. And despite shooting so well, it is, frankly, very hard to win a basketball game when you're turning it over and you're, the number of possessions, you're getting thumped by a dozen. It's a huge number. I would expect Phoenix will clean up the turnover game back on their home court. If they continue to shoot the ball at a good clip, they'll win game five. Bucks were favored by four and a half on their court. Phoenix is favored by four on theirs. The odds makers feel like they have a pretty good beat on this thing. They're moving at about eight, eight and a half to nine points for home court in the finals. Total now did finally come down. It's at 2.18 for the game on Saturday. And I'd be inclined to actually look back at the over again. I know that seems a little bit weird because I generally preach that as a series goes on, teams game plan better and better and better and totals come down. But this ball game was basically a lie when it came to what the final score was. Phoenix scored 103 points on their 106 or so possessions again, give or take 105, 106, which you would have thought, based on 17 turnovers, that they would have gone way under their projected marker. But they were pretty close because they shot the ball well, and there just isn't that much that can stop them from shooting the ball relatively well. Phoenix gets the looks they want. They're not the perfect analytics looks in this modern age of layups and three-pointers. Chris Paul, Devin Booker, actually both thrive in the mid-game, which lately now in the NBA is kind of harder to defend because teams don't expect it, don't really have it coming, and then everybody creates a certain amount of space around them when that's happening. So Phoenix doesn't hit a ton of three-pointers. That's why we talked about Game 2 being such an anomaly, them hitting a boatload of threes in that ball game. But suffice it to say, Phoenix is probably going to shoot a relatively decent percentage. I would expect them to turn the ball over far less as they head home here in Game 5. Chris Paul at 5 himself... And they're probably going to continue to lose the free throw battle and rebounding battle. But generally, they're going to be around their projected number, if maybe even a tiny bit above it, provided, well, game three was a blowout. So that one you can kind of throw out a little bit. But they still shot 48% in that ballgame. They, again, missed their free throws and had too many turnovers. But look back, if you would, at game two, which was way back on the 8th, I mean, good grief. We're only game five, eight days later. Uh, Phoenix shot 49% in that one. Turnovers are 12. They hit a bunch of three-pointers, so that was how they were able to push their marker up and over the uh, pace in this ballgame. And for the Bucs, they were the one that actually underachieved in that ballgame. So Saturday the 17th, 218 the final total. I, so I'll say this, while I do have a very slight lean to the over- I moving off 221 to 218 really doesn't change much for me. If I already liked the over at 220, then I'd say, oh, great, 218, we created a little bit of a buffer there. But at 221, I liked the under. It's weird to think that there's a universe where somehow I'm liking a number between 218 and 221. That's actually, frankly, that's too specific to handicap on a total. So... From my end, the reason I lean ever so slightly to the over is that I think Phoenix has a better offensive game more than anything else because the pace, they've been pretty well locked into a combined possessions number somewhere in that 220 range. It's basically been that every single ballgame. As it turns out, the Bucks shot so horribly in game four and Phoenix had so many turnovers that despite a combined number of possessions that again was actually over 220, the number went under. And I don't think it was because any special thing that the two teams were doing. What what we got was actually a Bucks team that shot the free throw a little bit better. Well, mostly because Giannis wasn't the only guy going to the line in game four. Middleton shot well. Drew was bad. Brooke Lopez was meh. Pat Connaughton was meh. Portis was bad. Nobody else got to do a whole lot. I mean, with Drew shooting four for 20 pulled their field goal percent way down there's a very real chance that Giannis gets 25 shots in this game on Saturday and then that would pull their field goal percent back up again I just think that the Bucks have now kind of figured out a way to get to that 105 110 range uh pretty easily because they did it in in game four and they played like generally pretty bad offensive basketball other than not turning it over and then for Phoenix they just coughed it up every time because otherwise, they actually made the most of their percentages. You just can't have 17 turnovers when you're only getting five in return. When you take three, four of those turnovers away, Phoenix, I mean, they they may very well have won that ballgame. Which is kind of why I like Phoenix to win game five, but I don't think I'm touching the side. I, I think the oddsmakers have this one relatively well figured out. Uh, Booker probably has a slower game. Chris Paul probably plays better over on the Buck side. I'm assuming Middleton plays worse. Maybe Drew plays a little bit better. Giannis is pretty much the only constant in this series, frankly, on either side to this point. And maybe that's the, maybe that's the angle to take is just to keep going with Giannis until that number gets too high. And in the meantime, try to figure out what kind of a game do you think we're going to get here after two days off? And the Suns, I think they probably felt relatively good about how they played defensively, and they just want to clean things up on offense. And for the Bucks, they're going to expect the shots will go down. Will they on the road? I don't know. But that's why we have a little bit of a lean to an over. But for the most part, we're at a juncture now where things are pretty well locked in in the finals. By Game 5, we basically know what's going to happen. Odds makers do too. Uh, and it's why my favorite bet in Game 4 was the Devin Booker prop as opposed to anything on the actual side. You might be looking at Game 5 at a Chris Paul prop because he was bad for the first time in a while in Game 4. You look for him to bounce back. Maybe that's your angle. And again, if you want to bet on this thing for the first time, hit me up, at Dan Vesperus on Twitter. I'll get you set up with an account and money in it to play with. You'll love it. I promise. Houston Rockets. The Houston Rockets. That's where we got to turn our attention next because as hinted At the beginning of the podcast, the Rockets have a whole bunch of money going to John Wall. They have a very good contract, I believe, for Christian Wood, who has two more years on his $41 million deal, and he's a good young ball player. They're way overpaying Eric Gordon. That was an idiotic contract when they gave it, and it's idiotic now, because dude can't stay healthy for more than 55 games in a season, and he's set to make about $60 million over the next three years to mostly be hurt. By the way, if you told me Eric Gordon was only 32, I'd freak out. Having read it on paper myself, I was able to freak out quietly where none of you guys could see me. Elsewhere on the Rockets, DJ Augustine has seven million uh on his deal, and I think they'll they'll be perfectly happy to have him around as a backup point guard. Avery Bradley has a six million dollar team option, which they'll probably just let that go. They have no reason to keep him around. Daniel House making about four. Kevin Porter Jr. two. David DeWaba, Sterling Brown are off the books, but you might see them try to bring those guys back. I think they liked what they got out of Sterling Brown at the very least. Jay Sean Tate uh, has a non-guaranteed couple of years left, but they'll keep him around. Same with uh, K.J. Martin, Kenny Martin Jr. They'll almost definitely guarantee his contract going forward. What we saw from the Rockets down the stretch was that they had a couple of guys locked in and a whole bunch of guys that were just all over the map. First and foremost, let's talk about my favorite player on the Rockets this season, and that was Kelly Olynyk, who we've preached about a thousand times on this podcast, and we finally got what we wanted to for so, so long. And unfortunately, it's going to go away. Because there really isn't a team out there that's going to give Olynyk the kind of freedom the Rockets did In the half season he played in Houston. He was a second round player. On a per game basis over that stretch with the Rockets. On the shoulders of 17 and 8. Four assists. Almost two three-pointers. One and a half steals. Half a block. 52% from the field and 84% medium volume at the free throw line. Because he was just taking shots. It was remarkable. But I can't imagine the Rockets have any need for Kelly Olenek. He's 30. They probably, I mean, they don't really have an obvious power forward on the roster unless you slide guys up a little bit, but they do have an obvious center, and that's Christian Wood. So Olenek becomes a bit superfluous. This is a team going into a maximum rebuild mode, but what we do have now is the body of work to back up what we've been preaching about on this podcast for three seasons, basically, which is... If Kelly Olenek could just get the time, which Eric Spolster was never willing to let him have consistently, and he actually started to give him enough minutes to get him inside the top 100 regularly this year, but never really any opportunity around that. This was a team that gave him time and opportunity, and he was incredible. Keep a very close watch on where Olynyk ends up because I think... That despite him exploding post break, people still won't take the plunge on Kelly O. We know his fantasy stat set is beautiful. It's always been beautiful. He's always been basically a nine category fantasy player, maybe minus blocks a little bit, but he's good to, he's decent to good in everything else if given any opportunity that's unbelievably rare he was better than league average with the rockets in every statistical category except for blocks by a nose i mean just barely under league average at 0.6 turnovers he was uh, i guess he was ever so slightly sub league average there but still that's like you got two or three strong categories you got another couple okay ones that's amazing He's going to go someplace, and he's probably going to get a backup job. And that's the problem with all of this. But what kind of a backup job is he going to get? Does he end up in a place like, I don't know, he feels like a a Dallas Mavericks kind of guy. Or Charlotte, I know they've been looking for a center who they could rely on a little bit. Someone who can move the basketball, space the floor. Charlotte's center situation has been god-awful for years now. So what if he ended up in a place like that? He'd immediately jump into the driver's seat, and I will sell out for Kelly O if he ends up in a place like that. Now, on the other hand, if he ends up back in a situation like Miami where he might play 25 minutes some nights, he might see a 29, he might see a 19, that's a tougher plunge to make, and then you're looking at back end of top 100, maybe even just outside. I'd be remiss if I didn't go from Kelly O'Linick to John Wall because, well, he was... I can't definitively say healthy this season but he played (laughs) some he played 40 games on the year yikes 40 21 points three boards seven assists that stuff all sounds pretty good 1.9 combined defensive stats but he was actually so god-awful in the three stats that no one pays any attention to that it weighed him down i mean it's 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 actually borderline incredible that you took a guy averaging 21 and 7 with almost two defensive stats and he's not inside the top 160 in nine category leagues because very high volume 40% from the field, medium volume 75% at the free throw line and almost four turnovers a game. He's downright bad in three statistical categories and not not a good rebounder either. It's almost impossible to make up for that unless you're punting both field goal percent and turnovers and you don't care about the fact that he missed almost half the season. And he'll miss almost half the season again. Maybe a little bit less. It'll be a full year of basketball, back into the swing of things. Rockets are going to need somebody to kind of lead the party. But his contract is basically unmovable. He has two years and $90 million on left on his deal that's uh crazy because there's a player option for 47 million dollars and you know damn well he's going to take it he can get moved that year moving him this coming season before the all-star break is almost impossible and we already talked about like russell westbrook is almost the only guy you could move him for and they already did that I, i don't know how they get out from john wall this season maybe there's some sort of machinations where they take on worse contracts but also maybe get some picks back in the process. But overall, he's probably stuck there in a rebuild. And someone's going to take the plunge on him again. He'll probably be a little bit better in field goal percent next year, if I had to guess. Turnovers and free throw percent probably don't change much. That's where he's generally been throughout his career. Uh, And still not going to be good enough outside of points leagues. I don't think you can go I don't think you can go his direction outside of points league's basically under any circumstance. I really don't. As I spy the baby monitor and realize we're running a bit short on time here, but I don't want to rush because there's a couple of names left on the board that are definitely worth looking at. One of them is Kevin Porter Jr. who particularly down the stretch started to see his minutes rise considerably, but unfortunately, his fantasy game didn't really come with it. Porter, in 33 minutes a game over his last 10 games, averaged 19-6, and 6, which is great, but no defensive stats, bad percentages, and high turnovers. He's John Wall without the defensive stats. And he's going to get way overdrafted next year because a lot of people are going to assume that, one, the defensive stats level off a little bit, which they probably will. 0. .4 steals and 0. one blocks is... Danilo Gallinari level low and I don't think that Porter's going to be that guy for an entire career. But bad field goal percent, bad free throw percent and high turnovers, that stuff is sticking. Which means, if we don't think John Wall is getting over the hump, I certainly can't tell you Kevin Porter is getting over the hump. But you know who did get over the hump late in the season? A pair of players. K.J. Martin and Jay Sean Tate were actually both pretty interesting late in the fantasy season. Now, they each have their holes, most notably the free throw line is a a massive gaping one for both of those guys, but Kenny Martin Jr., who I believe goes by K.J. Martin, but I've seen it both ways, averaged 13.5 points, 6.5 rebounds, 1.4 threes, a steal, a block, 49% from the field, and 68% at the free throw line over his last 15 games, and Jay Sean Tate was at 13-5 and with 4 assists, 1.3 steals, good field goal percent, really bad free throw number uh, over his last 15 games. Why am I higher on those guys than I am on Kevin Porter Jr., despite the fact that shortcomings actually overlap a little bit between those two guys? Well, for one, there's a little bit of a limited sample size thing going on here with Tate shooting 59% at the free throw line over an entire season, And that probably does work its way back up a little bit. So if you mute that element, he's not good at the free throw line, but you can probably give him mid to high 60s. That puts him inside the top 100, or it's certainly right on the borderline of it. And 1.3 steals for Jay Shantae was actually, believe it or not, kind of low for him. I know, crazy, right? When he was playing normal starters minutes, he was actually up in that 1.5, 1.6 range, and he might very well end up being one of the better steals guys in the NBA this coming year. Over the second half of the basketball season, Jay Sean Tate was right at the edge of the top 100. 12.5 points, 5.5 boards, 3 assists, 1.5 steals, half a block. I see no reason why any of that should go down, and there are actually arguments to be made that he gets more than 10 shots a game next year, because Kelly Olynyk off the books. Yeah, Eric Gordon probably comes back and plays a little bit. But John Wall taking 20 shots every single night. I don't know about that sticking. Christian Wood, he'll get his 15, 16 shots as well. We got to talk about Wood before we get things done here. Uh, K.J. Martin is a little bit more suspect. If only because it's not clear that he gets the power forward job when some of these other guys are floating around. We'll rehash this team's roster as we get closer to draft day but those are two guys i'd be looking at in the 100 or later range that i think could actually pay off just because you know there's fantasy stat set possibilities there if not totally locked in and opportunity to play actual minutes i like it i like those guys they're uh, interesting late picks to look at and then of course the other big one by the way you're not drafting eric gordon Outside of, well, pretty much anywhere. Because he's not healthy enough to make sense in a head-to-head. If you're playing a points roto format, that's unusual. I guess points roto game cap is probably a thing some of you are in? Question mark? Maybe he makes sense in that element. But no. John Wall, no. Eric Gordon, no. Kevin Porter Jr. is going to get overdrafted. Otherwise, I'd say, yeah, take a shot on him late. But he's not going to fall too late. Uh, Jayshon Tate. He's a guy I'd be targeting. K.J. Martin's a guy I'd be targeting. And Christian Wood is a very weird question mark. Because over the second half of the season, Wood played in 24 games, averaged 20 and 9 with a steal and a block, but high volume 60% at the free throw line, and that'll just kill you. Over the entire season, he was a high volume 63% foul shooter. His blocks were a little bit higher at 1.2 instead of 1%. 21 points, 10 rebounds. So not a ton changed for him other than as he got hurt, his percentages actually both dipped a little bit, and that was enough to shoot him downward from top 60 to top, well, uh, really like top 100 or even a little bit later. I don't think Christian Wood stays outside the top 100. That feels... That feels like perhaps the magic of a smaller sample size was creeping in a little bit there. Remember how fast he started this season? He was a second-rounder. 22-10, two threes, a steal, one and a half blocks, 56% from the field, 69% at the free throw line. So then you want to go to... And, you know, we don't have a ton of career markers on Christian Wood uh, because... Well, generally, he didn't get starters minutes until uh, much later (laughs) in the season. But, and that was with Detroit and other places, it was like one game here and there. But what we do know from his bouncing around and low minutes and whatever is that over his career, he's a 69% free throw shooter. So the 63% this year is something that could work its way back up the board a little bit. Uh, 51% from the field feels like it could stick because he did dramatically increase the number of three-pointers he was taking, if not necessarily the, the fraction of his total shots being taken. But when you see that big bump in usage, you're probably going to see a little bit of a downtick in field goal percent, at the very least. So I look at Christian Wood in, in, at his top 60 marker this year, and I say, all right, well, what was weird what was weird? The, the 21 points was not weird given how much he was playing and how many shots he took. The 9.6 rebounds made sense. Steals and blocks both made sense. He was at 1.3 combined in 20 minutes, so he's around 2 in 30 minutes. That all adds up. The only thing you really looked at and thought, hmm, was free throw. And if that 63% comes back up to 69 Then he goes from top 60 to probably more like top 40. It's actually a really big difference maker to adjust that number up by 6%. It goes from being a massive, massive negative impact number on his overall to being uh, still a negative impact, but not one that kind of breaks the bank. Because his high volume 63% was one of the worst free throw impact numbers in the NBA this year. It wasn't Giannis bad. It wasn't Rudy Gobert bad. But believe it or not, it was actually like Clint Capella bad because Capella uh, didn't take as many on a lower percentage. Wood was out there just taking free throws. He had a lot of them. He was at Zion level negative impact, more or less. Russell Westbrook level negative impact. This was a big deal. If you dilute that down and turn it into, say someone that had an impact more like uh medium volume 70 percent uh damonis was a medium volume 72 73 percent so a little bit worse than sabonis mm, we're gonna find somebody that is in this neck of the woods darren fox actually is a pretty close comparison here he was a little bit better at 72 percent but he took seven of them so if you dilute Uh, Christian Wood's negative marker down to De'Aaron Fox level, yeah, he jumps a full round, if maybe not more. I don't know where Christian Wood's going to get drafted next year because people saw him start the year so fast, and he's going to be basically unfettered in Houston as a center taking boundless shots. I would be pretty comfortable taking him inside the top 45. Would I take him at 30 or 35? Mm, That's probably pushing it a little bit. But we saw it. I mean, I I just mentioned it a second ago. The first half of the seat, well, first 20 games basically before he blew out his ankle, the blocks were a bit high. He was at 2.4 combined defensive stats, which I think was higher than we expected him to be. But the other stuff was actually not that far off of career marks, and he was number 16. Adjust the blocks down, adjust the field goal percent down, and bring them up from where he was in the second half of this year and sort of overall on this season. And you get a guy who falls in between in that 30 to 45 range. Then the question mark is, can his body withstand an entire season and do they even care to make it? Because he's on a good contract on a team that sadly has no prayer of competing this coming year. So why push him and what isn't what really is even the plan with Christian Wood? You've got him for two years, You're probably not going to be good during that window. Do you try to trade him? Because he's on a pretty good contract, and he's a really interesting young ball player, Or do you convince him, "Hey, we'll give you a crap ton of money after this contract is up. Stick around for our rebuild because John Wall comes off the books the same year you do, and then we can go we can buy half the league for what he's making at almost 50 million dollars that last season. I don't know. I, and Does that sales pitch work? I doubt it. After being on an awful team for three years, you think he'd want to come back? I don't think so. So who the hell knows? I, I really don't know what the Rockets are going to try to get out of Wood. They need draft picks. They need to rebuild. So they kind of need to stink again. He's a guy that I'm probably not targeting in head-to-head. He's a guy I would look at in Roto if he fell into that 40-ish range. And I'm inclined to think that probably doesn't happen. So I'm leaning right now towards a no on Christian Wood, although I could be coerced. I could be coerced. It's not, I'm not locked in. It's not etched in stone that I don't want Christian Wood on my fantasy team. I I definitely do. I just don't think the stars are going to align in a way that it makes sense, because I don't think he's going to play more than 60 games this year. Sorry. Sorry uh it's an 82 game season now I don't think he's playing more than 70 games I'd be pretty surprised if he cleared 65 honestly he's probably gonna fall somewhere in that range because he'll get some games off although he missed so much time this year he may be pushing to play more so maybe the target is more like 68 to 72 which would be fine but it's not like he's gonna get the durability check mark from me which means his per game numbers are gonna have to beat his ADP his draft slot, and if they do, it won't be by much because he's still kind of a buzzy name. If he gets drafted at 35, a best-case scenario probably gets him to his ADP. That's where I'm at on Christian Wood. So it's not out of the realm of possibility, but I give it like a 10% chance I end up with Christian Wood on my teams this year, which, by the way, markedly higher than the 0% chance I end up with John Wall or Eric Gordon on any team that's not a points league that doesn't, That has a bunch of uh, IL slots (laughs) like you need you need IL slots up the you know what to draft either one of those guys. And it's got to be points format or you've got to be punting field goal percent and probably turnovers. Also, it's a niche draft, but there is that weird inside straight like one one percent of people in leagues that might be doing that exact thing I just talked about. And then, of course, we wait on Kelly Olenek because that's the one that could make or break fantasy teams if we get him in the right spot. We just don't know. I have a very interesting promo to tell you guys about here while we apparently have another two to three minutes before my child wakes up, and that promo is the Hoop Ball Loyalty Program. Do not tune me out. This is a huge deal. If any of you, listening to this podcast, is a current HoopBall subscriber, a past HoopBall subscriber, an in-between HoopBall subscriber, meaning someone you had it, canceled it for the offseason, you're probably coming back when the draft guide comes out, or if you've never subscribed and you're thinking about doing it, do it now. Over the next 31 days, HoopBall is offering last year's prices. Meaning, so if you already have a membership, don't do anything with this part of the promo. But if you're thinking, if you are like strongly considering or almost definitely going to get one of our memberships, do it now. Because in a month, when the draft guide comes out and we sort of reset our calendar year, prices are going up. But if you get... Any membership, Fantasy Pass, Wager Pass, DFS Pass, HoopBall360, which is an insane deal right now, you can keep this current price forever. Forever. So prices are going up this year. I already know that to be the case. I don't know. Will they go up again next year? Possibly. The year after that. If they don't next year, they definitely would the year after that. Who cares? If you're going to play Fantasy for more than a year, you need to get... And Well, here, two things. If you're going to play fantasy for more than a year and you're going to get any kind of hoop ball membership, you need to do it now. And the other part of this is the way to keep that old rate, which right now the fantasy pass is $4.99. That's crazy low. The wager pass is $9.99. That's silly low. And the hoopball 360 is $12.99, which is the most insane thing ever because that also gets the Brewski 150 before anyone else on the planet looks at it. Those prices are going up. The only, All you have to do to keep that price is not cancel. So just get on it and let it ride, and you can lock in our basically our first-ever monthly price forever. If you're going to be playing fantasy sports 10 years from now and you're going to be using the Brewski 150 and HoopBall stuff, the prices are going to be significantly higher in 2031, and you can still be p- paying just $4.99 a month at that point. Amazing. That's the HoopBall loyalty program. You can find the link on Twitter. I don't think we have a shortened link, which is a shame. I should get one to give you guys on the podcast. Uh, but just follow at Hoopball Fantasy. Uh, at Dan Vespers at Aaron where We've all been tweeting about it because this is an opportunity for especially early adopters, folks that have been with us these last couple of years, get the best price and then just ride it into the sunset. Can you imagine? Get the Fantasy Pass for $4.99. In 10 years, it's like $15.99, and you're still paying $4.99? That's nuts. Also of note... We're going to be demoing beta tools this season. That's not going to last forever, but the Fantasy Pass will get you into that as well. And the HoopBall 360. I've seen some of you guys that jump on and off of things. Uh, Fantasy Pass, Wager Pass, whatever it is, you turn it off at the end of every month and then rebuy it. If you did that, you would lose the old rate now. So just get it, leave it on, and enjoy our, our first ever monthly price, so our lowest, Forever. And have a wonderful weekend. I'm Dan Bespris. This is Fantasy NBA Today, a Hoop Ball presentation. Talk to you on Monday when we finish up the Southwest Division with the Nolans Pelicans. So long. This has been a Hoop Ball presentation.